Well, it's good to see you all here today uh, in the house of the Lord as we continue on through our sermon series. We've been studying the book of Hebrews, and if you've been here for the past few weeks, you'll know that specifically we are in the middle of uh, the author of Hebrews' deep discussion on the priesthood of Jesus Christ and specifically how his priesthood is superior to that of the former priests. And so we will be today continuing this discussion on the priesthood of Christ in Hebrews chapter 7, and we will be starting in verse 23 down through verse 28. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 verse through verse 28. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we will also have it on the screen, and you can follow along that way. But if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning, Hebrews chapter 7 Verses 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made priest forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we come to it today, that you would help us to study it faithfully and hear it rightly. Lord, I pray today as we come to study your word, that it would have its intended effect. And that today, Lord, simply being exposed to the word of God, we might be changed, we might be molded, we might be shaped more into the likeness of Christ. I pray that through your word today, you might soften our hearts, open our eyes and ears to hear the gospel. And Lord, today, may we not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. We ask, Lord, that Hebrews 7 would have its intended effect on us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for those of you who listen to my podcast, uh, for those of you who didn't know, I do actually uh, appear on a podcast. It's a, a weekly podcast that me and Jackson Van Dyke from First Southern do. And um, if you listen to my podcast, you will know that a few months ago, we talked about a, uh, a rather significant event, or at least significant in the lives of people like myself and Jackson, who do not like having to pay for everything in order to use it on a regular basis. You'll know that a few months ago, Apple announced a tragic announcement that they would no longer be supporting the iPod. I know, for all of you people in your mid to late 30s, this is terrible news. Uh, as it was for me, because I am a big fan of the iPod. 
Uh, the iPod, I think, was an invention ahead of its time. For those of you who had an iPod, if you still have it today, it probably still works. Might be dinged up a little bit. Maybe it needs a battery replacement, but that's very manageable. But that little thing probably still works. iPods were ahead of their time in that they were so durable, so long-lasting, such a well-designed machine that it is the opinion of myself and Jackson that that is largely the reason Apple decided to discontinue them and stop supporting them. Because if you buy an iPod, you never need to buy another iPod, usually, usually. Uh, but this announcement of the death of the iPod for us uh, and looking for something to take its place, because honestly, there is very little that has taken the place of the iPod. Largely, what the iPod and the concept of having music downloaded onto this portable hard drive that you could listen to anywhere, that concept has largely been done away with for subscription services, right? We all listen to music on our phone now, but usually it's through some service that we, that we either listen to with the ads or we listen to and pay to listen to it on a monthly basis and have unlimited access to music. But largely, the iPod was a different concept and has been replaced by nothing. Uh, you might remember the Zune was an attempt to compete with the iPod, but uh, frankly just paled in comparison. But the iPod and the death thereof reminds us of a reality that is true in our world today, and that is that nothing lasts forever. Nothing in our world lasts forever. Nothing in our world has been built with the intent that it will last forever. And even if it was, we know that nothing would truly last forever. Even structures that date back hundreds and thousands of years will eventually crumble away unless they are completely replaced uh, in every way as they deteriorate and decay. We live in a world where things expire. Warranties expire. Offers, trial offers expire, milk expires, even water expires. If you didn't know that, look on your bottled water next time you drink it. You will find that there's an expiration date on that water. Literally nothing in this world lasts. Nothing that has been created in this world was intended to last forever, and that includes priests. And we see this in our text today. We see that the priests of the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, was one that included priests who did not last, priests who had an expiration date. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been seeing in the book of Hebrews that Christ's priesthood is superior to that of the, Levit the Levitical priesthood or the Jewish priestly system. But specifically this week, we will consider how Christ's priesthood is superior because it is one that lasts. It is one that endures, one that, unlike everything else in this world, does not expire but is permanent. It is eternal. And in addition, we will also consider the salvation that is ours because of this lasting, permanent, eternal priesthood of Christ. And we begin our discussion today by looking at the extent of Christ's priesthood. This is point number one, if you are following along in your sermon notes. Point number one, the extent of his priesthood. We see this in verses 23 and 24, where the Holy Spirit tells us, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. 
because he continues forever. Here we see in verse 23 a continuation of the discussion that was really started last week. A discussion of how Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. How the, the priesthood of the Old Testament is inadequate. And therefore, the whole Jewish system, which is built around the law, around this Levitical system, is inadequate. The claim really being made is that the Old Covenant and all that is contained within it is inadequate. I said this last week, and I think it's important to clarify today what I mean when I say it is inadequate. I am not trying to say to you today that the inadequacy of the Old Testament means that it was just completely not the way, did not work the way God intended for it to work. It was not that God created the Old Covenant, set it all up in place, and then man screwed it up, and the Lord realized, man, well, now that's not going to work. I have to come up with a new plan, and therefore came up with his redemptive plan in Christ Jesus, the new and better covenant. The new covenant, the better covenant, is not one that came about because Christ realized that the old one that he had created was faulty, that it had not done what it was intended to do. Rather, the point is that God created the Levitical system. He created the old covenant not with the purpose of saving anyone. That the old covenant was never designed to be one that was salvific. The law and the Abrahamic covenant never was intended to be one that could save anyone. Because it was never one that could deal rightly and truly with sin. And therefore, the old covenant, as it was created by God and as it was intended, was inadequate to save. Now, that does not mean that the old covenant is without a purpose. It doesn't mean that it has no point. And we could talk for a long time about the purpose of the law, purpose of the old covenant. But it is, I think, suffice to say for our purposes here that the old covenant was instituted with the intention of pointing us to Christ. As we have said, it was, it was instituted, intended to be a shadow of which Christ and the new covenant is the substance. That the old covenant, with all the sacrifices, with all the blood that was shed, with all the, the requirements that were made, was intended to demonstrate for us the consequences of sin, the need of sin to be dealt with, and to build for us a hope that one better would come who would fulfill the old covenant needs and redeem us from our sin. And we see the inadequacy, the inability to save of the Old Testament covenant again here and the fact that each and every high priest was unable to complete his work of atoning for the people's sins. Every time there was a change in the priesthood, it was another reminder of the fact that sin still needed to be dealt with. That sin still existed and needed to be taken care of. We see this in the fact that there was always another priest that needed to be had. If one priest were ever to complete his task of correctly mediating for the people, of truly removing the sins of God's people, then there would be no need for another priest. The task would have been completed. It would have been fulfilled in the previous priest, but... Rather, what we see is that there was always a need for another priest. Why? Because each and every priest died in his work and was unable to fulfill it. And the fact that death itself was what prevented these priests from continuing in their office is another tragic reminder of our sin and the consequences thereof. We know that 
death has resulted in the world as a consequence of our sin, as a consequence of the fall. And therefore, when we see the death of these priests, as the people of Israel would have, it not only would have been a reminder of the constant need for more priests, of the fact that, that, that the work had not been completed, but also a graphic reminder of the consequences of the sin that needed to be taken care of. Death itself has been and always will be a reminder for us of the consequences of sin. Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. He also says in Romans 5 that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is and should always be to us a reminder of the sinfulness of humanity. A reminder of the curse that has resulted because of our rebellion. This is why I do not subscribe to the idea of having balloons at a funeral. Some of you maybe have heard someone say, or maybe even had the thought yourself of, of, well, if I'm in Christ, then I know where I'm going when I die. I know that there is no reason to be sad because I'm going to be with Christ in heaven, as Paul says, to be uh, separated from the body is to be at home with the Lord, right? And this idea makes sense to us, and I, I understand where they're coming from, but what we always need to understand is that death is not something that we can rejoice in or should rejoice in. That death is in and of itself a graphic reminder of the consequences of sin. And therefore, when we come as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, to the house of mourning, we come to mourn. We come not to celebrate, and we should take no celebration, no joy in the reality of death. And therefore, the idea that balloons would be at a funeral or something that does not compute with what death is actually a picture of. Death is a graphic reminder of sin and of the consequence of sin. Now, this doesn't mean that I believe death has the ultimate victory over Christians or that death has the final word. As much as we lament over death, we also know that death is not the end for those who have placed their confidence in Christ Jesus. That is a true sentiment, and that is a right sentiment. And this is why, even though I think balloons at a funeral are inappropriate... There is one practice that has largely been done away with in our culture today for various reasons, some having to do with just civil laws and practicality and, and various things, but there is one practice that's been done away with that I think did in its time serve a good purpose, and I think the church has, has lost a little bit of something with the absence of it, and that is with church cemeteries being right next to the church building. If you ever go to old churches that have been around for a long, long, long time and stood in the same place for years, uh, you'll notice that in many of these cases, on many of these church grounds, there is also located somewhere near the church a cemetery where the saints who have fallen, who have died, who are asleep in Christ Jesus have been laid to rest in the grave right there near the church. And it's, it's something that is sort of foreign to us today, but this was commonplace then. And I think that because it's foreign to us, we see it as morbid. We see it as strange. We see it as creepy. And some of that is, is a little bit of the point. Not that we would see a graveyard as creepy or, or weird or that somehow ghosts live there. Nothing like that. But rather, what this did for the churches 
is that every time they came together to worship, every time they came to the house of the Lord, they were met in, when they first got there before they even walked in the door with the reality of their sin. They were met with the gravity of what it is that they were about to go in this place to do. And in light of this, that they were to come and worship Jesus Christ for the good news of the gospel. That as you survey the grounds that the church sits on, and you see the saints that have fallen asleep, you see the graphic reality of sin. But what you see is something else too. You see in that cemetery what Hebrews chapter 12 describes as the cloud of witnesses of the saints that, that we together will be reunited with one day. That all of those saints who have fallen asleep and are now at rest there at the church, we see the reality in the gospel and in Christ's resurrection that that is not the place that they will remain. And we look forward to one day as one body, as one people in Christ, saints of old and saints today and saints to come together in the resurrection, resurrection worshiping Jesus Christ for what he has done for us with our new bodies. It is because of Christ's defeat of death and the resulting permanence of, in, of his intercession that we anticipate this day, the day when all of the saints, all of the house of God, buried in those cemeteries will be raised to new life just as we will also be one day. Which leads us to point number two, the extent of our salvation. We begin to see this in verse 25 of our text Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The word consequently here points us back to what we just saw in verse 24, saying that because his priesthood is permanent, because his priesthood is forever and is trustworthy, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ Jesus. This is good news for us today, church. For all those who are drawing near to God through Christ Jesus, we can trust that there is no expiration date on Christ's intercessory work. And he is therefore able to save, not just save, but save to the uttermost, to the final degree. There is a, an evangelistic tactic, an evangelism analogy that uh, you might be familiar with. It's one that I'm not crazy about. Um, I think it has its merits. I think it has its downfalls. But that is the analogy of the bridge, that if you've ever seen this drawn out, the point is that we stand on one side of this deep chasm, this deep ravine, and God is on the other side. And this deep ravine stands on our way, and there's nothing that we can do to bridge the gap or nothing that we could ever do to jump over the ravine, but that Christ Jesus has come and become the bridge from where we are now, left in our sin to God and eternal life. And though I think there are a lot of problems with this analogy, I think what we see is, is that there is some merits to it in that Christ Jesus has become the means by which we draw near to God. Now, I might not say it's a bridge. I might say it's more like a, a divine claw machine that grabs us and places us into presence with God. I think it's probably a a better analogy, probably more correct with what the scriptures teach. But even still, we can see that this is the means. Christ is the means by which we draw near to God. And as we talked about last week, to draw near to God is what it means to be saved. Is what it means to enjoy life forever. 
Because eternal life is to be found nowhere else than in the very presence of God, and we cannot come to the very presence of God unless we come through Christ. The word uttermost is also important here. This word in the Greek implies two things. It implies both completeness of time and completeness of extent. And some have tried to understand what the author is intending here. Should we see it as a completeness of time? Should we see it as a completeness of extent? But I would argue that why do we have to decide between the two? For indeed, both are true of us. We can consider our salvation to the uttermost in two different different ways. We can consider that Christ saves forever. Because he intercedes for us forever, his his priestly work is permanent. There is never an end to our representation before God. And therefore, there is never a need of us to find any other intercessory means. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He saves forever for all time that there is never an expiration date. But also, he saves completely. That part of the work hasn't been done by Christ and now we need to make up the difference. He didn't do 99% of the work and then leave us to do 1% of the work in order to bring ourselves to God. But rather he saves to the uttermost, meaning that salvation is entirely a work of Christ. This is what we would call the doctrine of sola Christus, that we are justified in Christ alone before our God. That there is no other means, there is no other need for any work to be done, for in Christ Jesus our justification has been fulfilled. He saves to the uttermost. This is such good news. The fact that when I stand before God on the day of judgment, I will not need to give any excuse or submit any evidence that I could present on my behalf. I would simply point to Christ who pleads for me. I will appeal to my legal representative as I stand before God, the one who represents me, the one who intercedes for me. In him, I will be saved to the uttermost from the wrath of God that I deserve and only in him. If your plead before God, holy and righteous judge, is anything but Jesus Christ, then your plead is lacking and God's wrath remains on you. This is Paul's point to the Galatian church. That they were relying on the gospel plus something else. Christ plus their works in order to be justified before God. And Paul said, absolutely not. If you are relying on anything, even in addition to Christ, then you have lost Christ entirely. Justification before God is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And that is good news. That you don't have to wonder if you have made up the 1% or the 0.5%, or the 0.0001%, because you don't need to. Christ saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This is the extent of our salvation. Now that we have looked at the extent of Christ's priesthood and the extent of our subsequent salvation, let us consider for a moment in verses 26 and 28 the manner of his priesthood. Verse 26 And Hebrews 7 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Here we see how it is that Christ is able to be our high priest and draw us near to God. 
the manner of Christ's priesthood is one of sinless perfection. And it is the first and only of its kind. And it is the last of its kind as well. Verse 28 goes on to tell us, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We see the manner of Christ's priesthood as one that has never been seen before. One that is without weakness, without blemish, without spot. The one thing that marked every single priest that has come before, every single priest under the Old Old Covenant, the one thing that marked, marked each and every one of them was sin. And we see this marked by the fact that each and every one of them died. And with this sin means weakness. And because of this, there was never a perfect high priest in Israel. Therefore, every high priest had to make sacrifices for his own sin, the text tells us, as well as the sins of the people. This is a weakness, and it is a weakness that is not found in Christ Jesus. As we see here in Hebrews, and as we read through the Gospels and through the rest of the Old Testament, Christ was perfect in all things. He was holy. He was innocent. He was without sin. He was without any weakness. If Christ is the bridge by which we draw near to God, he is the one who has been made with the perfect and without weakness materials. I got thinking about this as I was, as I was pr preparing for my sermon today. I thought, man, I wonder what some of the oldest bridges in the world are. And there's a handful of bridges that have lasted for a really, really long time. But as you look at these bridges, even some that go back all the way to uh, the time before Christ lived on this earth, go back all the way then and you look at these bridges and what you see is, yes, they might be standing, yes, they might even be being used, but you see even in these bridges the decay you see the rocks becoming brittle. You see the ground shifting. You see failure at work, even though it might be far off. Why is this? Because each and every bridge that has ever been made here on earth has been made with earthly materials. Materials that, like everything in this earth, are beset with weakness, have, have experienced the fall and experienced the effects of the fall. Metal is prone to rust and decay. Cement becomes brittle and breaks apart. Earthquakes tear down, floods destroy. But what we see is that Christ is the superior bridge because he has been made with superior, superior material. Not made, if he were a bridge. He is of superior substance. It's like if someone were to make a bridge today and they made it not with normal steel, but with steel that could never rust and never bend and never break and rivets that could never come loose and cement that would never become brittle. No bridge exists in this world because they have all been made with earthly materials. In the same way, the priests of the, Le the Levitical system were of an earthly substance and therefore prone to decay. They had an expiration date built within them. Unlike Christ, who is of a superior substance, of the same substance as the Father, one who is superior and will last. The great theologian A.W. Pink says it this way when he speaks of the impeccability of Christ, his perfect righteousness. He says, quote, we are living in a world of sin and the fearful havoc of it has wrought, the fearful havoc it has wrought is evident on every side. 
How refreshing then to fix our gaze upon one who is immaculately holy and who has passed through this scene unspoiled by its evil. Such was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. For 33 years, he was in immediate contact with sin, yet he was never to the slightest degree contaminated. He touched the leper, yet was not defiled even ceremonially. Just as the rays of the sunshine upon a stagnant pool without being sullied thereby, so Christ was unaffected by the iniquity which surrounded him. End quote. This is the beautiful reality of Christ's perfection. And this is what we needed. Which is why the text says that it was fitting in verse 26. Why is this fitting? Why is it fitting, fitting that these should be the qualities of our high priest? Because as we see from verse 27, Jesus did more than just bring the sacrifice for sin. He was the sacrifice for sin. And then we begin to understand not just the manner of our high priest, but the manner of our salvation. Point number four. In verse 27, we read this. He, being Christ, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. No longer do sacrifices needed to be offered up over and over again, day after day, for Christ's one-time sacrifice for all. Sacrifice of himself was sufficient to cover sin for the entire world. Because Christ was all these things listed in verse 26, because he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, he could do what no other priest could do. He could actually succeed in removing our sin and removing the guilt that we have because of it. And he did this by offering up the true lamb without spot, without blemish. What all of those bulls and goats that were sacrificed foreshadowed was fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the perfect lamb of God. In this act, the wrath of God was finally and completely and to the uttermost satisfied. And the guilt of sin is removed. And access to God is achieved because the sacrifice was perfect, brought by the perfect high priest. This is a further explanation of the claim that is made in verse 22 that Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant. That in Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest who was holy, innocent, spotless, who has brought the perfect sacrifice, that of himself, sins can actually be removed and have actually been removed for all those who trust in him by faith. Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable for God for the removal of man's sins because the sacrifice was perfect and holy and righteous. Therefore, the wrath that belonged to us was taken from us and was placed on Christ. And the righteousness that Christ had was then given to us. We have been clothed, bestowed with his righteousness. That we are no longer now enemies of God, but we have been reconciled to him. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In the same work that I quoted for you earlier from A.W. Pink, he concludes this section of his work with this statement. Here then is one of the solid planks in that platform on which the faith of Christians rest. Because the Lord Jesus is almighty, having absolute power over sin, the feeble and sorely tired saint may turn to him in implicit confidence, seeking his efficacious aid. Only he who triumphed over sin, both in life and death, can save me from my sins. This is the reality for us today. All of this because Christ is the better high priest, the better sacrifice. The work of intercession for the Christian is the only trustworthy defense that we have before a holy God. Christ's work of intercession. As we conclude today, I want us to consider the reality of what it means to not have an intercessor. It is truly a dreadful thought to think that we might stand before a holy God in defense of ourselves. And yet, this is where we are apart from Christ Jesus. All those who are trusting in anything besides Christ for their salvation, even in part, are left to defend themselves. They have no defense. They are left simply to point to their own works, which as the Bible tells us are filthy rags before a holy God. And that is the only defense that there is apart from Christ. That is a terrible place to be. And the, the thought of that, the reality of that, ought to drive us as those who know the truth, those who have Christ interceding for us, to warn those around us. Indeed, almost every sermon that we preach from the Word of God could have evangelistic application to it. But specifically today, I was struck by the reality that there are are those all around us who one day will stand before a holy God and will stand and hold up dirty, filthy rags and say, how far will this get me? This is the reality of those apart from Christ. And it is the duty of those of us who know the truth to warn them. It seems unloving to the world to tell them of their sin, to tell them of the reality that God is holy and just and no sin goes unpunished. But as a matter of fact, there is nothing that we can do to demonstrate love for a lost and dying world than to warn them of this reality than to expose to them the frailty of their works before a God that is just and holy. Truly, the debt that we owe because of our sin is more than we could ever possibly hope to pay. Just like the servant in the story that Christ told, who owed a debt before his master that he could not in an entire lifetime hope to ever pay off. And what we have in Christ Jesus is what that master granted to that servant. Your debt is forgiven. You no longer owe anything. Christ has paid the debt for us. He has provided a way for us to draw near to God, and it's through him and through him alone. Through faith in Jesus Christ, 
We are brought near to God. We are saved, not just saved, but we are saved to the uttermost because he is the high priest that we so desperately need, the high priest that the Levitical system could never produce. He is the one who bids us then, come, come unto me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For this priesthood and his reign have no expiration date. But like the benefits they bring, it is eternal. Let's pray.